returning this evening to our studies in Isaiah chapter 55, where I will invite you to turn with me once again, and where once again I'll read to you the chapter in its entirety. So Isaiah 55, beginning in verse 1. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. Behold, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander For the peoples. Behold, you will call a nation you do not know, and a nation which knows you not will run to you because of the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as, high, or for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. For you will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up and instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up and it will be a memorial to the Lord for an everlasting sign which will not be cut off. So, Father, help us come to you again tonight. Listen to you again tonight. Come and feast on your word and on Christ again tonight and help me to serve up your feast well. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we left off last Wednesday, considering and reveling in Jesus Christ as king, king from the line of David, seated on the throne of David, according to God's covenant with David in verse 3. King, verse 4, a leader and commander, and the sort of leader and commander, verse 5, under whose reign people willingly place themselves, a benevolent king who conquers by wooing rather than by weapons. And it falls to us tonight from verses 4 and 5 to consider this king and his kingdom even further. I just want to dive right in and give you three headings for our studies tonight. First of all, we need to consider the breadth of Christ's kingdom. Here is a king whose kingdom is of great breadth, and we need to consider the breadth of his kingdom tonight. And we find this consideration spoken of quite clearly in verse 4. Behold, I have made him a witness 
to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Now, it's important to remember that these words of Isaiah were originally addressed not to peoples, plural, but to a particular people, to the Jewish people, the people of God in the Old Testament, to uh, or which God was about to send into exile. And though they weren't living like it at the time, the Jewish people surely knew that the Messiah who would come from the line of David, according to God's covenant with David, to rule on the throne of David, the Jewish people surely know that the Messiah would be their king, king of the Jews. But that's not all verse 4 says, is it? God does not call this messianic son of David a leader and commander for the people, but a leader and commander for the peoples, plural. In other words, the Messiah... And his gospel, the king who was coming, may have come to the Jew first, yes, but by no means did he come to the Jew only. I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. So here we are being reminded that the idea of what we call world missions, global evangelization, every tribe and tongue and people and nation is not just a New Testament thing. This was God's plan even in the days of Isaiah, 700 years before Christ came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. The bringing in of the Gentiles, in other words, was not God's plan B when the Jewish people by and large rejected Christ. It was always God's plan that the Messiah would be, verse 4, a leader and commander for the peoples. And It was always God's plan to graft those Gentile peoples into his Israel, into his kingdom. Indeed, well before Isaiah came onto the scene, God promised Abraham that in his seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. We have it also in Psalm 2, where the father speaks to his son, to his Messiah, and says to him, Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations... As your inheritance. And then think also of that splendid Christmas time prophecy in Micah chapter 5, where we're informed of the Messiah's birthplace and of the Messiah's pre existence, and where we're also told toward the end of the paragraph of the breadth of his kingdom. Micah 5, 2 through 5. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore, he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has born a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel, and he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. This one will be our peace. So you see, it's always been God's plan to send the king of the Jews and through him to bring the Gentiles into God's kingdom as well. And notice the certainty of the words in verse 4. God does not merely say of the Messiah that he will make him a witness and a leader and a commander. That would be solid enough, proceeding from the ever-faithful mouth of God. But God, it seems to me, puts an even further stamp of certainty on his word concerning the Gentiles in that he says in verse 4 what he says in the past tense. He speaks 
of Christ coming as a leader and commander for the peoples as though it's already done. I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. In other words, already in Isaiah's day, seven centuries before the manger and the cross and the empty tomb and the great commission, way back in the days of the Old Testament, God had already appointed Christ as king over the nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. And I say to you that as surely as Isaiah's prophecies in chapter 53 proved true, as surely, in other words, as Jesus died exactly as Isaiah described it, pierced through for our transgressions, and as surely as Jesus rose from the dead exactly according to the word of Isaiah in chapter 53, verse 10, so surely will the words of chapter 55, verses 4 and 5, prove true. God has already appointed Christ a leader and commander for the peoples, and they will, verse 5, come running into the company of his people by faith. Every last tongue, tribe, people, and nation will run into the church and into the arms of Jesus. And this is a great encouragement if you love the cause of world missions. Because the reality is, though we have seen the fruit of verse 4 come to pass in amazing ways, though people are worshiping Jesus all over the globe tonight, and though we ourselves are part of that fruit, the reality is that there are still many peoples, as Alan and Rebecca Teklitz reminded us a few weeks ago, there are still many peoples who do not yet have the Bible in their language. And there are still many tribes that have yet to be reached with the gospel that is in that Bible. And so there's great work yet to do. And there are many nooks and crannies of this globe where no one yet, not even a single person, has crowned Christ as king. And yet, verses like Isaiah 55.4 give us great hope. Because it doesn't just tell us that Christ might be king among the various people groups, but that he will be king, and that indeed God has already crowned him as such. In God's economy, it's as good as done, so that the living creatures and the elders in Revelation 5 can sing to the Lamb that you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and in Revelation 7, John can then report that he saw a crowd from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, worshiping both the Father and the Son. It will be. God has appointed him. He has made him a leader and commander for the peoples. Isn't that hope-giving? God puts it famously like this in Isaiah 46.10. I will be exalted among the nations. I was reading just yesterday a short biographical sketch by Ian Murray of the great pioneer missionary to South Africa, Robert Moffat. A few of you may have heard of Moffat. The whole sketch is only 34 pages in length, but twice in those 34 pages, that truth that I just quoted from Psalm 46.10 was cited by Moffat as one of the great reasons he kept going among very difficult and very discouraging circumstances. In the 1820s, after five years or so of missionary labors, Moffat described his work like this. A sameness marks the events of each returning day. No conversions, no inquiry after God, No objections raised to exercise our powers in defense. 
We preach, we converse, we catechize, we pray, but without the least apparent success. It did indeed produce a melancholy feeling when we looked around us on so many immortal beings, not one of whom loved us, none sympathized, none considered the day of their merciful visitation, but with their lives as well as their lips were saying to the Almighty, depart from us, we desire not the knowledge of thy ways. And what does Moffat say kept him going? After five years of that. Well, it was the truth that we were just considering and which I just quoted from Isaiah 46.10. Moffat quotes it, of course, from the King James. I will be exalted among the heathen. He says this, quote, cheered our often baffled and drooping spirit. And Christ was exalted among the Bechuana people eventually as Moffat and his partners labored on for six more years. And then 30 years after the breakthrough with the Bechuana, Moffat found himself trying to press the gospel further north among a different tribe, nearly a thousand miles away from his home base and only 50 miles from the border of what is now Zimbabwe. And there were great delays and difficulties and the local king was waffling on a previous promise to allow a missionary settlement there and their food supplies were dwindling and Moffat was in charge of the whole party of about 30 people and he was discouraged and concerned about how it all might turn out for them and yet once again we find him comforting himself this time in a letter home to his wife with that same promise from Isaiah 46, I will be exalted among the heathen. And this is the hope of missionaries today and those of us who pray for and support them, that God has already appointed his son as a leader and commander for the peoples. And therefore God will be exalted among those peoples. And the kingdom of God will encompass, Revelation 7, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb. That is, in the first place tonight, the breadth of Christ's kingdom, and you might almost say the certainty of that breadth as well. But then we need to consider in the second place the willingness of Christ's subjects The willingness of Christ's subjects. Christ is spreading his kingdom all over the world into every tribe and tongue. How willing are the people going to come under his rule? Well, listen to verse 5. Behold, you will call a nation you do not know, and a nation which knows you not will run to you. A nation which knows you not will run to you. In other words, when the Jewish people return from their exile... And when the Messiah came among them, and when they went about expanding his kingdom among the Gentiles, as the apostles did, what they were going to find was was that the Gentiles, or at least some of the Gentiles, were going to join up with them quite eagerly. And in running to these believing Jews and joining with them, the Gentiles would, of course, be running, more importantly, to the king of the Jews. And all of this willingly, a nation which knows you not will run to you. There wouldn't be any need for coercion or military might or swords, save for the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And as we saw in Psalm 110 a few months ago, the Lord would stretch forth Christ's scepter and cause his rule to take root even in pagan lands, in that the people in those lands would, quote, volunteer freely 
in the day of his power. And it's the same thing we find here in Isaiah 55, 5. A nation which knows you not will run to you. That's what happens when the gospel is preached. I had the privilege, as I mentioned a few moments ago this past Saturday, of having lunch with a man called David Vaughn, who's been for 20-plus years a missionary in France. And the work, as in Robert Moffat's day, is often slow-going. But he told us a story of a man with whom he'd been sharing Christ for quite some time, and the man was finally converted, finally brought to repentance and faith, and at his baptism, the man spoke up like this to the crowd gathered. If you told me in years gone by that I'd be undergoing Christian baptism, I would have said you're crazy. And if you told me that I would believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, I would have said you're out of your mind. But here I am today, and Jesus is risen, and I come to be baptized in his name. He'd been brought by the power of the Holy Spirit from a place where he was anything but willing now to volunteer freely to Jesus Christ, to run to him, to come willingly under his kingly rule. And this is always how the gospel spreads, isn't it? It's true. We can speak of Christ conquering hearts and triumphing over his enemies. But in this age of grace, before his last coming, he triumphs with love. And he conquers by wooing his enemies so that they see how good it would be if they would accept his offer to be friends. Sometimes they run to Jesus in ones and twos, as in France and as in Cincinnati. And sometimes under the extraordinary outpouring of the Holy Spirit, they come in their dozens or even in their hundreds. But whatever the numbers are, they always come willingly. And that should remind us, as we reflected a week ago, of what a truly benevolent king is our Jesus. He's the sort of king that people want to follow when by the Holy Spirit they really know who he is. He's the sort of king, remember, who spreads out a feast in verses 1 and 2 for all who will come under his rule. Water and wine, bread and milk for everyone who will actually come and partake. A king who offers us something better than our own delusions of self-rule. So let's not forget these facts. Let's not forget our benevolent king, how good it is for people to come under his rule as we invite our neighbors and co-workers to do so. Let's not forget that we're inviting them to a feast and to the sort of king who throws such feasts even for prodigals. Let's not forget that the message of Jesus is good news. News that when accompanied by the quickening of the Holy Spirit makes people want to run to our king. And let's not forget these things for ourselves either. Let's never forget what it was like when we first came to Jesus. How glad we were to shelter under his wings. How happy it was to submit to his rule. How we ran to him. And Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever, is he not? If we're no longer eager to run to him and to dine at his table, it's not because he's changed, but because we have. And yet, because he's the same, if we will repent once again, we'll find that there's bread on the table still and water and wine and milk for whoever will come. And everything that we possibly could need is there for us in the person of Jesus Christ. The goodness of the king can be seen in the willingness of his subjects. And that was our second heading this evening. The breadth of Christ's kingdom the willingness of Christ's subjects. And then finally, in this 
passage, we need to see the strategy of Christ's conquest. The strategy of Christ's conquest. How does Christ go about wooing the nations into his benevolent kingdom? What is his strategy? What is his method for making his kindness and his love and his goodness known to the peoples and to the nations? Well, let's notice three things in verses 4 and 5, and then we're through. First of all, notice in verse 4 how the Father says that he has made Christ himself a witness to the peoples. Behold, I have made him a witness to the peoples. The same one who is a leader and commander for the peoples is a witness to them. In other words, the first thing is that Jesus himself has come into the world to testify on his own behalf as to what a magnificent and benevolent king he really is. And he did that, of course, for the 33 years of his pilgrimage on the earth and even more concentratedly in his three years of his earthly ministry. Jesus testified for himself. He spoke like no one ever spoke. He fed the hungry. He healed the sick. He cast out the evil spirits. He loved the outcasts. He befriended the sinners. He was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. He laid down his life for his friends. He rose from the dead. All these things that we read about in the Gospels testify of his power. And they demonstrate what a good king he really is. And so in his own incarnation, in his own earthly life and ministry, God made his son a witness Primarily in those earthly years to the people, singular, to the lost sheep of the tribe of Israel. But then through his word, the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments written down for the ages, in which Jesus stands forth and in which Jesus still speaks from Old Testament and New, in his written word, Christ continues to be a witness, not only to the people, but now to the peoples. We said earlier that yes, There's still much work to do in getting the word of God into the language of every people group. And there is. And yet, just take a moment sometime and look at what all is available on the Bible app on your phone. I use the app version. Some of you probably use the same one. It contains at least part of the Bible in 788 different languages right here in my pocket. The word of Christ in 788 different languages. And based on the statistics in the latest edition of Operation World, that's only about a third of the total number of languages into which at least part of the scriptures have been translated. Now, there's much more to do, I know, but it is amazing to me how Christ himself, through his word, is witnessing to the peoples of the world and how God is fulfilling the plan of Isaiah 55.4 by means of the written word of God, translated into over 2,500 languages. And so both in his incarnation and earthly ministry and in his written word, Jesus himself is, verse 4, a witness to the peoples. And the fact that he's a witness to the peoples in his written word should give us a hint as we try to witness for him, as we try to woo people into his kingdom, as to how exactly we should go about it. We have to speak to people about the person and work of Jesus about his life, his earthly ministry, his incarnation, his death, and so on. And we must do all of this in his own words from the 66 books of the Bible. 
And speaking of our witnessing for Jesus, it's our witness for Jesus that comprises the second and third parts of his strategy of conquest. Because not only does God say of Christ, I have made him a witness to the peoples, but then in verse 5, he turns, God turns to his people and says to them, to us, Behold, you will call a nation you do not know. Christ is a witness, yes, but you will call a nation you do not know as well. And so it's not only that Christ witness for, witnesses for himself, but his people witness on his behalf. Now, that was true in the first instance of ethnic Israelites, for whose benefit Isaiah originally wrote these words. Because once Jesus was gone from the earth, who was it that actually wrote the New Testament? that's being translated into all these languages? And who was it that went about preaching Christ, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and eventually fanning out to the remotest part of the earth? It was largely a collection of Jewish believers, wasn't it? And so it was true of the Jewish people. Behold, you will call a nation you do not know, and a nation which knows you not will run to you. But this has to be true of us, too, doesn't it? We've been grafted into Israel. We've been grafted into God's kingdom. And so verse 5 is written to us as well. Behold, you will call a nation you do not know, and a nation which knows you not will run to you. That's spoken to us today, too. After all, who is it that has translated the Bible into all those 2,500 different languages? God's New Testament people, the church. And who is it that writes the software so that the translators can do their work more efficiently? Christ's people in the church. And who is it that takes that written word and goes out among the villages and the towns and the cities and the highways and the hedges, preaching it and teaching it and reading it aloud to the people? It's the church that does that. And some of us in this room may be called to get in on these things in the far-flung reaches of the earth And among those people not yet reached, behold, you will call a nation you do not know. And so this is the second part of Christ's strategy for wooing the nations underneath his benevolent rule. Namely, that his people will be busy in the world calling out like Isaiah does in verses 1 and 2. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come. Buy and eat, come. Buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. To whom have you issued that sort of invitation in recent weeks? Or who is it to whom you ought to be speaking of Jesus like that in the days ahead? And know that you're surrounded by many pagans, and many of them probably show no promising signs at all of the possibility that they might one day run to you and to Jesus. But that's the whole point of this verse, isn't it? Israel wasn't just going to preach to itself or even just to the Samaritans who lived right next door and already had some biblical ideas tucked away in their consciences. Israel was going to preach to the pagan Greeks and Romans and so on who were utterly foreign to them, whom they did not know, verse 5, and people who did not know, who did not understand them either. These were the people whom they were to call. 
And these were the people who came running in when the apostles went out and did so. So here's Robert Moffat ministering for 11 years among the totally disinterested Bechuana people. But in the 12th year, by the preaching of the word and by the power of the Holy Spirit, there was a noise. And behold, a rattling. And the bones came together and the breath came into them and they came to life and stood on their feet. And such it will be in our day as we continue calling on the nations that we do not know. Even the ones, even the one that exists more and more foreign to us right outside our doorsteps and written on our own passports. Keep speaking the word of the Lord to this nation and to the nations abroad. Keep proclaiming the gospel to your kids and in your workplace and in your neighborhood and with your extended family and some of you out in the remotest part of the earth. And as the Lord is willing, some of them will eventually run to you and to us and more importantly, to our king. And then there's one more thing to notice here about the strategy of Christ's conquest. And that is not only that Christ himself is a witness to the peoples and not only that his people will join him by means of their words, but also at the end of verse 5, that the nations will be attracted to the glory of Christ's people. Behold, you will call a nation you do not know, and a nation which knows you not will run to you because of the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. In other words, one of Christ's strategies is that he will so glorify, so beautify his people that the pagans will actually be attracted to us and then through us to Jesus himself. Does that make sense? I know it doesn't seem to make sense when we look at the world around us, but does it make sense that that's what Isaiah is saying? That's what God is saying? Your testimony for Jesus not only consists of your words, but of the witness for your life. And when your life is glorious, people will run to you. And through you, they will come to Jesus. You will call a nation you do not know, and a nation which knows you not will run to you because of the Lord, the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, because he has glorified you. The beauty, the glory of the church is so important in the nations coming into the kingdom of Christ. Now, what does it mean that God has glorified us? Well, what did it mean that he glorified those ethnic Jews who first witnessed for him in the days of the New Testament? What did it mean that Jesus glorified Peter and John and James and Bartholomew and Matthew and Barnabas and Paul and so on? What did it mean that he glorified them? Well, let's just say that it didn't mean that they looked like they belong in the golden chairs with the velvet seats on TBN. God did not glorify his first Jewish witnesses by means of restoring their homeland from Roman rule. He did not glorify them by means of making them wealthy. He did not glorify them by putting golden miters in their hands and funny little pointed hats on their heads like the modern day bishops. Peter and John were thought of as uneducated and untrained men. Paul called himself the dregs of all things and said on one occasion that he ministered in fear and much trembling. And so their glorification patently did not look like what the glorification of so many religious professionals seems to look like in our day. It was not an earthly ascendancy. 
So what was it? What does it mean when Isaiah says, he has glorified you? What was the glory that came upon and surrounded the early Christians? And that was the adornment of God's word, which won many a pagan neighbor into their company and into the kingdom of Christ. Well, let me just mention a few things. Their glorification consisted of things like the beauty of holiness, as the King James renders Psalm 96.9, the way in which their lives were changed for the better. And then there was also their great love for one another, the way as we read in Acts 2, they were of one mind and taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart and freely sharing their property and possessions. Their love was their glory maybe as much as anything else. And then it was their glory that they were willing to suffer for their faith, which we see again and again in the book of Acts, and which we also read about in the two centuries or so after the close of the canon. It was glorious the way these Christians suffered and sometimes died for their king. And there was a glory in the way the early Christians prayed as well, the way they sought God and hoped in God rather than in the strength of their own might. And that's a stunning characteristic to observe in a group of people in any era that they've learned to trust in someone besides themselves. And the way God answered their prayers powerfully was also a glory which surely attracted many people to them and to Christ. And there was a glory very often in their preaching as well. Not just that they got it right, but such that Paul could say to the Thessalonians, our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. There was a glory when the word of God was preached. And all these things, their holiness, their love, their prayer lives, their powerful preaching, their joyful suffering of Jesus, all these things were glorious evidence to the watching world that God was with them. That there was something supernatural going on in their lives and so it's no wonder that some people hated them and that other people ran to them hoping to come under the rule of the same glorious king and the same sort of thing will happen today when God glorifies us and when we walk in the glory that is truly ours in Christ Mark Dever has called the church a display of God's glory It's not a full definition, but that's a good way to describe the church. The church is a display of God's glory, and it's no accident that when the church is not very glorious, very few people listen all that intently to her calling. But oh, when she's beautiful and radiant and glorious, when she is holy and loving and praying, and suffering, and rejoicing, then people will actually come and ask us to give an account for the hope that is in us, and they will find themselves running to us and to our King. And so we simply must be, more and more, as individuals and as a church, a display of God's glory. And when we are, we must give God the praise Because as Isaiah says it here in verse 5, Behold, you will call a nation you do not know, and a nation which knows you not will run to you because of the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you.